Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek is an American entrepreneur in the healthcare and technology sector, and he is the best-selling author of Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, as well as Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence. Vivek founded Strive Asset Management and currently serves as its executive chairman. Prior to Strive, he founded the biopharmaceutical company Royvent Sciences. He joins us today to discuss ESG, or as he and I like to call it, the ESG scam, more accurately. So Vivek, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. 
Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I, I love that. Uh, <laughs> I love that entry line. But yeah, let's <laughs> talk about it. So, uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about your background. How do you go from, uh, you know, being a successful entrepreneur in the pharmaceutical industry into going after the ESG scam? It was a bit of a winding road. I mean, if you told me two years ago, maybe three years ago, that this is what I would be doing right now, uh, I would have said you were crazy. Uh, but, you know, I'll give you, give you my background in a nutshell. I'm talking to you from central Ohio. I was born and raised not far from here. So I'm in Columbus today born and raised in Cincinnati. Parents were immigrants. They came to Southwest Ohio in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, you know, went to a relatively crappy public kind of school background, I would say up to uh, about eighth grade. Ended up in uh, Jesuit high school, Harvard for college. I was kind of a nerdy science guy. So I ended up in the lab studying molecular biology. That was, um, you know, that was what it felt like was my calling, actually. But by the time I graduated, you know, there's something about drug development that's really interesting from a career perspective and from uh, from the discovery of new medicines is that the sheer time horizon it takes you to get from discovery all the way through actually seeing human impact of what you do is so long that as a portion of your lifespan, it would be at best two or three times that you could do that start to finish at best. And so I actually decided to take a different road. Uh, it was sort of happenstance how it landed on my lap, but there was a hedge fund that recruited on Harvard's campus, a bunch of former physicists that you know started this highly successful hedge fund. And they were interested in building out a biotech investing group, but wanted people who knew a little, thing, a little bit about you know, life sciences to be able to adjudicate some of those investment decisions. And so I joined them as an analyst in the fall of 2007, joining the biotech investment team which actually was for me even more intellectually stimulating than the hours that I would spend doing, you know, quasi manual labor in the lab. So I, I did that for seven years from 2007 to 2014, ended up becoming, uh, you know, the youngest partner at that hedge fund and, you know, had some biotech investing involved, some strokes of luck along the way, no doubt. Um, but I had my share of those and, uh, you know, would like to think that I, you know, learned a thing or two about how to do it well. Uh, but anyway, I did that for seven years. Three years in, I uh, had this itch to study law and political philosophy. And so I, I actually told my bosses in 2010 that I was going to, you know, leave and, and, you know, take a little break, go to Yale Law School, think about some different problems than I had thought about in the past. They actually said, you go ahead and keep your job and go to law school if you want. So I managed a portfolio from New Haven, did that for three years from 2010 to 13. Uh, but anyway, after I graduated and I came back, I actually got much more interested in, in, I would say, being an agent of change in the biotech industry rather than just a passive investor. And so I left my job as an investor in 2014 and started a biotech company. I started Royvent, led that as CEO for seven years. Uh, we worked on a number of medicines. Five of them are FDA approved products today. You know, thankfully it's a multi-billion dollar company. I had the privilege of leading that company. Incredibly proud of a lot of, a lot of the work we did both on drugs that failed and, and on the ones that succeeded. Uh, but I ended up stepping down as CEO in the start of 2021 as I started to turn my attention to what I saw as a, a different kind of cancer, right? One of the drugs that I worked on is an approved drug for prostate cancer today. That's great. But there's a lot of people working on biological cancer. I, I grew increasingly concerned about this cultural cancer that I thought would threaten to kill the so-called, you know, if you will, American dream that allowed me to achieve everything I ever had by that point in my career. 
And, uh, you know, it was interestingly a cultural answer that nobody else in my peer group really took an interest in working on. And so I didn't think that I was going to do that as my career calling. I, I did write a couple of op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, you know, from the perch of being a CEO of a biotech company about some of the experiences and perspectives that I had. But one of the things I quickly learned, uh, and actually one of, after one of the pieces I published in the Wall Street Journal, three of the advisors to my company uh, resigned in the wake of that. That was a wake-up call to me that I had you know, a choice to make if I was speaking about this phenomenon of stakeholder capitalism, ESG, and, and then the associated cultural issues that intrigued me about race and identity politics and woke culture. I had a choice to either speak freely as a citizen or to speak in a way that would not harm my business interests, but I couldn't do both at the same time. And so that's what led me to say, you know what, I've... I've called at the end of one career chapter, maybe the beginning of another. I stepped down as CEO, still remain chairman of the board of the company, but stepped down as a CEO, made very clear that going forward, I was going to speak as a citizen, not as a capitalist, and ended up writing the pair of books that I did that, you know, in turn led to the doorstep of founding Strive. Yeah. So what is it in your mind that is the problem with stakeholder capitalism? Why is this such a major issue for you? I mean, you have a very successful career as a pharmaceutical entrepreneur. Why not just focus on that and uh, keep raking in the big bucks? Yeah, it was a good question. I had raked in uh, some amount of big bucks by that point in time. So that was definitely one factor. And I think that's important to actually put a fine point on, which is that it didn't take it didn't feel like, you know, people say a lot of what you've done over the last couple of years is courageous or whatever. It really doesn't feel that courageous at all, right? I'm not, I don't take the risk of putting food on the dinner table to speak my mind. And I think a lot of people actually in the country do, which is part of what made me feel some sense of responsibility to do more of it. But your question was, what's wrong with stakeholder capitalism? And, you know, I think it's interesting. I, I think that Milton Friedman put his finger on a correct pulse, he got part of the story, which I think is really important, is that I did feel that if companies were burdened with the mandate to not just make products and services for people who want to buy them and make a profit that way, but also took on the objective of advancing other social agendas, there was a real risk that that would lead companies to be less effective at making products and services for people who need them and to make a profit doing so. This was the essence of Milton Friedman's concern, by the way, right? The, the Friedman view from the 1970s, 1980s was effectively that the promise of American capitalism was that it's the best known system to mankind to lift people up from poverty. Part of how it does so is by harnessing self-interested actors to be able to do productive things together. And if those self-interested actors were distracted or their attention was diluted by having to advance social objectives, that in turn would make those companies less profitable, which in turn reduces the size of the economic pie, which in turn reduces the ability of capitalism to deliver on its promise, on its economic promise. And I definitely found a lot of that persuasive, but that's already asked and answered, right? That's not, a, that's not new. You don't need me to tell you that, right? Milton Friedman's texts and others who have argued in his tradition for decades could have told you that much. I was actually far more worried about the flip side of the problem, right? Not how the infection of politics into the boardroom would impact the effectiveness of companies. But the opposite problem of how companies taking on those social issues as their own would actually undermine democracy. The democratic 
Republican form of governance that set America into motion in 1776, and I would say the modern West as we know it into motion in the decades and centuries that followed, that was predicated on the idea that we settle our most important political differences, whether and how to fight climate change, whether and how to address historical racial injustice, whatever they might be, we settle those important political questions through free speech and open debate in the public square as citizens where everyone's voice and vote counts equally. And to be that, for better or worse, right? And that's the crucial part of this. For better or worse, that's how we do things in the post-1776 new world as distinct from old world Europe, right? Where you have a small group of church elites and business elites that get together behind closed doors and decide what's best for the rest of society at large. We rejected that model. And for me, stakeholder capitalism was actually quietly the revival of that old world European model here on new world soil that said that the way you settle those questions is not as citizens through the political process or through the public square, but rather by delegating authority to a small group of capitalists who used their market power to also wield undue political power by actually taking political questions out of the political sphere altogether. And I know that was actually the far bigger threat posed by stakeholder capitalism was not just the threat to capitalism, but the threat to the integrity of democracy itself. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the fiat standard and the Bitcoin standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the case here is that uh, just because your company got good at uh, making phones or laptops or soft drinks or pharmaceuticals does not mean that you should be the, uh, you know, the judge and jury on uh, all manner of other questions in society. Yep. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on this. I guess what you're saying here, before we get into the meat of the ESG scam, is that you're against the entire concept of stakeholder capitalism, shareholder activism, uh, corporate meddling in these issues that, you know, if your corporation makes soft drinks, you should just stick to making soft drinks and try and satisfy the customer who buys those soft drinks and leave all these other issues out. But, I mean... 
isn't this a little bit unreasonable? Because at the end of the day, the consumers and the shareholders and the management and the workers, they have the right to speak their mind. They have the freedom of association, basically, to work with whoever they want. And um, I'm wondering here, don't you think it is a force for good that we have the ability that, you know, as a society, rather than so as a libertarian, you know, the way that I think of it is, I'd much rather have people freely uh, boycott morally objectionable things rather than have the government and voters and you know the police use violence against them so for me if if i find that somebody is say um engaging in some kind of morally objectionable uh behavior that i don't like it's not violence let's be clear it's not that they're violently um aggressing against anybody if you're initiating violent aggression then i believe violent re- retaliation is justified but morally objectionable non-violent actions that you don't like that you don't want to be associated with wouldn't you rather have corporations um, and individuals decide you know i don't want to work for a corporation that let's say imposes racial segregation um let's say you know somebody sets up a company and says this company is only for people from this race or we're not hiring people from that race i personally think that the way to fight something like this I don't think it's. Uh, I, I don't think the use of violence is justified. I don't think government should uh, put those people in jail because they're uh, being racists. Because you know they are not violently um, violating anybody's rights. They're just saying you know we don't want people from this group to enter our uh, business um, or to work for us. But I believe that society, and I believe I myself, would boycott people like that. I wouldn't want to buy their products. I wouldn't want to work for them. And I think you know a, a society that has enough anger and enough rejection of these kind of things where they think, you know, let's get the government to go throw those people in jail. Well, you don't need to get to throw them in jail. If everybody just says, let's not buy their stuff and let's not sell them things and let's not provide them with the supplies that they need to operate their business and let's not work with them, then that's going to put them out of business, I think, more effectively. And it's going to take away from them the ability to play victims and to act like they're the ones that are persecuted. I think that kind of peaceful activism is more um, is more in tune with what a civilized society would look like. What, would you agree? So I agree partially. Um, I, there's, a, um, there's a deeper philosophical question, which I'll tease and we can come back to, but I'll get to actually the, the, the more practical observation that, that, uh, reveals that your, I think, appropriately idealized view isn't the way that actually most stakeholder capitalism is adjudicated today. It's actually adjudicated through capital force, not through uh, through top-down force of a small handful of market actors that are abusing other people's money, not the actual capital owners themselves enforcing it. So we'll come back to that. But you know, the, the moral point is, look, I, I touched on this towards the end of Woke Inc. I think that there is a distinction, a, a moral distinction between deciding that you don't want to go to the racist barber versus coming out with a bullhorn in front of the barber shop and effectively soft barricading it from anyone else entering through cultural shame. In one case, you're making a free decision as a market participant, as you are free to do. In the other case, you're trying to starve the barber. And, and I think that there's a, there's a really subtle distinction there, and there, there deserves to be much more said about it, and we can go there. I think the risk of going there right now, though, is that we actually miss the elephant in the room, which is that 
We don't even need to go to that nuanced question to be able to say what's wrong with the application of stakeholder capitalism in the market today, where what's actually happening today is it's not the owner of capital that's making that informed decision. Okay. This is the rude surprise. And this is how this is the the relationship between stakeholder capitalism and ESG. Uh, ESG is effectively the instantiation of the philosophy of stakeholder capitalism through the use of capital and capital markets. What's effectively happened is a really small group of agents, I wouldn't even call them market actors, agents, financial institutions, let's name them, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. Those are just the top three, but you know, you go down the top 10, Invesco, Neuberger, Bergman, you go down the list. These firms, what they're really doing is that they're using other people's money to advocate for political and social viewpoints in corporate America's boardrooms in a top-down manner that's driving most of that one-sided sociopolitical behavior in a way that most of those capital owners, the everyday citizens, the owners of capital, the agents of change that you described in the idealistic vision, do not even agree with, right? That's a fiduciary breach at the heart of the application of stakeholder capitalism itself. So, so do I have my own philosophical issues? And, and I mean, that's why it takes a whole book, you know, to, to explicate this. And we can go there if you want. Yes, I do. I have, I have some issues at the philosophical core of using green pieces of paper as the mechanism to settle the kinds of questions that we ought settle as citizens through a mechanism where everyone's voice and vote counts equally. That's my philosophical core, right? I'm fine with the $1, one vote system deciding whether it's this iPhone or someone else's Samsung phone that rises to the top of the marketplace of products. But I'm not fine. And I'm fine with even a $1, one vote determining who sits on the board of that company, Apple, right? That's, a, that's capitalism. That's how capitalism works. It's a $1, one vote system. But whether or how we fight climate change, whether it's through higher prices for consumer products in relation for reducing a unit of carbon, carbon dioxide or methane or whatever, those are the kinds of questions that we ought to settle as citizens where everyone's voice and vote counts equally, unadjusted by the number of dollars they control in the marketplace. That's my philosophical view. But whether or not you agree with that philosophical view, the, the lower hanging fruit is that even if you did believe that capital owners ought to settle those questions as capital owners, qua capital owners, if you will, that's not even what's happening today in the intermediated marketplace that we have for capital and its deployment in capital markets, where the agents, the flow through intermediaries through whom that capital flows, have co-opted the power to use that capital to settle those social and political questions according to their own agendas, right? And, and that is the essence of the stakeholder capitalism as scam, ESG as scam view of the problem is that even if you had a high integrity version of capital owners, the people who had the most green pieces of paper, you know, making the rules, he who has the gold makes the rules, as I joke around in my book, what I call the Goldman rule. That's not even what's happening today where it's not the people who even own the gold. It's the people who squat on other people's gold, like Larry Fink, like the leaders of Vanguard and State Street, et cetera, that are unilaterally making those decisions with other people's money. That's a form of fiduciary breach. It's, a, it's, it's a, almost a form of fraud in a certain sense. Uh, not necessarily that any one of those individuals is responsible for that fraud, but the system has set itself up for that fraud. And I think that that is a problem that demands a solution, which is where my day job is focused today on what I'm doing with Strive to, to bring alternative, to your point, market competitors to at least solve that problem 
of the undue, unearned aggregation of capital in the hands of a few market actors that are abusing it, right? To say that if you own a stock, great, you have a financial entitlement, but in the true vision of the free market, you also have a voting entitlement and a voice that comes with that stock. And today what's happened, and this is, this is a relatively recent phenomenon. I think, I think the market will fix this. But what happened today is a bunch of people thought they were just handing over the, the job of getting the financial entitlement maximized to a group of asset managers. But those asset managers took the vote and the voice for themselves. And that's actually what's driven a lot of corporate America's politicized behavior behind the scenes, not really the demands of just customers or workers or whatever, which in a certain sense, that would be capitalism. This is not. This is a perverted form of corporatism where those agents get private favors for themselves, including, by the way, from the G word, from government themselves, in return for abusing other people's, uh, other people's money. And so, so I think this idea that it's free market capitalism, that it's the invisible hand of the free market guiding some of this politicized behavior is an appealing narrative. It is in most cases false at its core. It is really just the invisible fist of government acting through the avatar of these so-called market actors that really aren't market actors at all. They're just stooges of the state that's hiding behind the scene. That's the essence of what's happening with, with the BlackRock problem on down. Yeah, no, I agree with you entirely. But I guess um, the distinction between the way that I see it, perhaps, is that uh, in my mind, I think there's nothing wrong with shareholder capitalism in the kind of abstract, uh, pure sense in which- Stakeholder, you, know, you, mean, you mean there's nothing wrong with stakeholder capitalism, is I think? Yeah, as in, you know, as an individual, I just don't want to invest in a company that um, is promoting racist practices or that is uh, doing things that I don't agree with. Um, I don't see that. Yeah, no, we don't disagree on that. Let me just let me just say one thing. That's not stakeholder capitalism. That's just capitalism. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is the key difference, right? That's capitalism, right? And by the way, you know, you, you know, I don't know if you've experienced as an entrepreneur building a business, but anyone who has built a business before knows that you can't build a successful business if you don't take care of workers, if you don't have repeat relationships with your suppliers, if you don't actually serve the demands of your customers who are human beings and not automatons, right? Anyone who's built a successful enterprise knows those things to be true. My own experience teaches me the same, and it's not rocket science. You would expect it, right? You're serving a marketplace of humans and not robots. But that's just capitalism. So why do we need the separate term? It reveals that something else is going on. And, and I got to make one more point, too, in response to your I, I point about racial discriminations, because you now brought it up twice. So I was going to let it go the first time, but now, now you got to make me, you're, you're making me have to, to just pick on this and double click on it for a second. My friend, the, the free market is not free to fix what the law does not allow it to fix. Okay. So, so I love the idea of businesses freely deciding who they get to hire and who they don't get to hire. Let's say there's the, the, the so-called, and, and by the way, in all of my experience in the last 20 years, I haven't seen the example of the example we're going to talk about here, which is the racist business. I know we talk about these examples in the abstract. The funny thing to me is at least in 20 years of living my adult career from Ohio to New York City to where I've built you know, to internationally, I am yet to see this so-called hypothetical, the racist business. But let's say we see one, all right? The business that doesn't want to hire black people or white people or brown people or, or pink people or whatever the, the color of their skin might be. The free market can, can theoretically fix this. Not even theoretically, it instantly would, right? If they're, if they're firing all of these great, you know, uh, yellow shaded pink people over here. Well, that's an opportunity for another business to hire the yellow shaded pink people who are brilliant and gain a 
competitive advantage in the marketplace and in the marketplace for talent. So the market should fix this problem. The problem is actually we as a society, at least in the American context, right, have decided that we don't want the market to fix that problem, that we're going to fix that through law, right? So there was a Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, which said that you cannot discriminate legally on the basis of race, sex, religion, national origin. As of two years ago, through through the Supreme Court's ruling in Bostock, that now includes sexual orientation. So there's all of these so-called protected classes where actually we say, no, 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 we don't want the market fixing this problem. We, the government, tell you that you can't discriminate on that basis. So you and I will be on the camp of saying that get rid of those protected classes, I presume at least, get rid of those protected classes altogether, let the market fix this, because people can decide through self-interest how we actually address what would have been an inefficient form of discrimination, which is also a morally reprehensible form of discrimination. They go together. So be it. Well, guess what? That's not the world we live in today. And, and you know, this, this is where I kind of poke my libertarian friends and you're a libertarian and you're a new friend. So I'll poke you too, is to say that, you know, you guys will, uh, and I used to be a libertarian myself. So this is why I feel okay poking fun in, in, the, in the way that I do is, you know, you libertarians, you talk a big game, yet when push comes to shove about talking to the Civil Rights Act or, or the protected classes, you all kind of keep your thoughts to yourselves and just take that as given. And say that, oh, yeah, yeah, controlling for all of that pre-existing governmental stuff that I would get in trouble if I actually talked about. Let's just pretend like that doesn't exist. But I'm going to say, hey, free market, let's throw a free market party. In the no, 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 no. Your, your friends haven't pushed back enough. So let they me handle that enough. one for you. Let me just let, let me The just reality finish. is, okay, if go ahead. one point, though, this is super important, man. This is super important to close the loop on this example. Is that it's not my point wasn't just to, to make a joke about the, the hypocrisy here of saying the market can't fix certain things, but it can on others. So, so, you know, political beliefs, for example, aren't protected. How many people were, were fired for wearing the hat of the wrong political candidate to work or for posting the wrong thing on social media? My point isn't that it's just the hypocrisy of viewpoint based discrimination continuing in the market, which is a big part of what stakeholder capitalism and ESG through the S prong of ESG calls for viewpoint based discrimination in the marketplace. It's not just the hypocrisy. It's that one was causally responsible for the other. All right. This is a really important point. So with the Civil Rights Act, you said that you can't discriminate based on race, sex, sexual orientation, religion. All right. So be it. Well, that was interpreted through many the laws in many states and through the court system as saying that, okay, not only can you not discriminate, you also cannot create a hostile work environment for any of those protected classes. Well, what are one of the ways you can create a hostile work environment? It is by expressing or even allowing others to express the views that a member of that protected class deems to be hostile to their interests. So the irony is that the law actually creates the very conditions for the viewpoint-based discrimination that we see in the marketplace, the so-called anti-racist agendas in human resources departments are in fact required in some ways by the civil rights laws themselves, because that's what's required to make sure that you don't express views that a protected class, be it women, minor, you know, people of color, minorities or whatever, certain of them would find offensive. That itself is the requirement of the law itself while leaving viewpoint-based discrimination unprotected. So why do I go on this long legal tangent? It's the fact that you can muse about the idyllic free market all you want. That's not the starting point we begin from today. And it's the asymmetric application of certain of those laws that actually create both the distortions in the market that stop the free market from working. And then doubly, now going one step further, co-opting certain of those most powerful market actors like BlackRock or like Google or Facebook or whoever 
to be able to even do through the market, the alleged market through the back door, what government couldn't itself do the fr- through the front door. And so that's really, I think it, it becomes a straw man of a debate to say that, oh, is it the market working or not? In its purest form, you don't need to talk about stakeholder capitalism. Capitalism itself includes taking into account a lot of the social considerations that you and I described because workers, consumers, and, and shareholders, et cetera, may have their own interests. But that is not the essence of what's happening today. The essence of what's happening today is, is really a perversion of that market itself and putting our blinders onto that fact to have a theoretical debate, I think, misses the, the, the quintessence of what's happening. Yeah, well, I think the, the key point that I'd answer is that, is that as a libertarian, uh, th- this is a very common uh, gotcha that people present to libertarians, which is, you know, well, what about the civil rights movement? And the answer is uh, the problem of segregation was government policy. It wasn't businesses going out of their own way deciding, hey, you know what, we just don't like black people. That was government policy that was imposed in the states and in the counties where this was imposed. And then the, the idea that you need government coercion in order to get rid of segregation, I think is the real fallacy here because you don't. You just need government to stop forcing people to segregate because this is, I mean, the, the as you mentioned, you know, the business wants to make money. And so they'll figure out which is the most effective way to making money. And then these kind of prejudices, they are the ones, they are the things that are imposed through the ballot box. It's cheap and easy for people to go out and say, I don't like black people. And so therefore, from now on, whenever I go into a restaurant, I want to make sure that my restaurants don't have uh, black people sitting next to me. That's a very cheap thing to do at a, at a ballot box because it doesn't have any cost attached to it because voting is free and voting is just a place where you can let out your inner child that doesn't need to take into account opportunity costs. On the other hand, when you actually run the restaurant, you realize how much more expensive it is to segregate the restaurant and run it in half, how much clients you're going to use, how much annoy, how, how much more inefficient you're going to be if you need to go and racially profile people who want to work for you and you want to make sure that nobody who's a third or a quarter or a tenth black handles the food of the people who are white. That's just not a way to run a business efficiently. So if you wanted to run a business efficiently, you wouldn't do that thing. And that's why these things needed to be imposed through politics. And so, yeah, no, I, I don't think, I mean, I'm, I'm not an American, so- uh, Where are you? Is, <laughs> I'm Palestinian, Jordanian. And where are, are you in America today, though? I'm currently visiting America, yeah, but uh, okay. I'm not an American citizen. So I- But I, would you support basically- um, you're getting rid of these protected classes in the law. Just yes, just, yeah, okay. definitely. I, I I don't believe that there should be any kind of protection, and I think uh, there would be no formal uh, segregation if society feels so strongly to the point where they want to pass laws about this. Then nobody's going to be able to get away with making a uh, you know a black uh, a restaurant that prevents black people or um, any, any minority from entering the restaurant. And I think, you know, the pressure of the market is just more important than this. Where I, and, and I, to go back to your original analysis of how this is really a subversion of capitalism, I agree with you, but there's one key word that you use there, which is the democracy of the green pieces of paper. And then you also said the democracy of the gold, the gold man makes the rule, whoever has the gold makes the rule. And here, this is the distinction that's going to draw the connection for us with Bitcoin. Um, why this is such an important point. Because I think the reason that all of this thing is corrupted is because of these green pieces of paper. 
And that's really what it comes down to. The fact that a certain part of society has access to a money printer that can make money out of thin air. And of course, the green, the, the printer here is a figurative thing. It's most money is not printed into pieces of paper. Most money is digital. But ultimately, uh, large financial institutions are able to make money because they are able to borrow at a lower interest rate. So BlackRock effectively have a money printer. They don't have a physical money printer in terms of dollars, but they make dollars. And that's what allows them to basically uh, set the rules of society for everybody uh, everywhere. And so for me, I think that's what... Uh, that's what the what's at the heart of this. So I I agree with you that the the current agenda is insane, and I agree with you that it is hijacking um, all these nice sounding ideals. Well, oh, wait, you know, nobody wants to see the planet boil, so let's just keep giving more money to more power to BlackRock to decide how the world needs to be run. But I think that the the fundamental reason why this corrupts the process of capitalism is because the in the process of capitalism if you come up with an insane idea where hey um let's implement this ESG agenda let's implement all these crazy corporate governance rules to make uh, the world better and your ideas don't actually make the world better then all that happens is that you and anybody who follows you ends up being broke whereas people who don't care about this end up being in a better situation the reason this is kind of uh, all inverted and why as a Bitcoiner, I'd take interest in this kind of um, insanity is because it's the it, it, it's the fiat world. It's, it's the inversion of reality that fiat money allows, wherein it doesn't matter how insane um, BlackRock's demands are, they can continue to just enforce them because they can print money and you and I cannot. That's what it ultimately comes down to. And so because of that, they can impose all these crazy agendas. They can and they can move, as you said, I think this is the key point, they can move, as you said, they hijack other people's money in order to impose the agenda that other people don't want. This is a very powerful and very important point you make. Like the average person whose money is being managed by Vanguard or State Street or um, BlackRock does not agree with all of these crazy tenets of the agenda. And yet their money is used for it. And the reason for me is because these companies can basically print money out of thin air. So, so the companies, and, and, and I'll tell you the sense in which I understand what you mean to be true, uh, is that BlackRock's codependent relationship with the government, right? I mean, if you look at the number of people who are just going as it's like, it's not even like a revolving door. It's like there is no door between the party <laughs> in power and financial institutions like that. And then, by the way, the COVID-19 stimulus packages run right through firms like BlackRock that administer it and actually and actually uh, you know take a nice little fee for it. And then what they're able to do is to implement a climate agenda through climate pledge through the back door that Congress couldn't get done through the front door. It's this codependent, you know, incestuous relationship. And, and that includes the ability of the federal government to be able to, uh, according to the precepts of modern monetary theory or whatever else, you know, print print endless pieces of green pieces of paper raining like, you know, mana from on heaven, money raining from on high for 15 years to keep the addicts. It's like it's like showering a bunch of cocaine addicts with with cocaine is what we're basically doing to the broader economy, bribing a bunch of people to buy into it for as long as it works, uh, which, by the way, it may be stopping to work because I think inflation gets to catch up for, you know, catches up for the original sins. Um, so, so I get that. I get that element of the story. Something that interests me and like, you know, maybe I'll you know, I haven't had this discussion before. And so, you know, maybe I'll learn something from this today. Is that I'm on board with everything you said minus a point of emphasis, okay? Which is that, and this is sort of my, like, I don't, I'm kind of like on board with the essence of the Bitcoin thesis on how this is actually 
um, going to help address some of the undue aggregation of power, including the undue aggregation of power that I'm most concerned about, which is firms like BlackRock squatting on $10 trillion of other people's money to exercise and wield quasi-political power, you know, that wouldn't be as possible or as feasible in a world in which you had truly decentralized money. Uh, but where I, where I start to get a little skeptical of the Bitcoiner crowd, or, or certain members of it at least, is that it asks Bitcoin to do too much, right? It, it's, not, it's not the only problem. It is a problem. It is a really big problem. But my, as an outsider, this is peanut gallery kind of commentary for me, so take it or leave it. But my advice to you would be, don't pin yourself as to having to solve every major global and cultural problem with Bitcoin, right? Like it, it's an aid. It's, it's good. Like we have too much centralized aggregation of capital, fiat money, including the codependent relationship between crony capitalists and the private sector and the government that's responsible for, for operating the printer. Uh, you, know, you know, I'm using printer figuratively here, as you noted, but, you know, that, that's, that's a big problem. We need to address that problem. I think it will be a greater step towards liberty the more that is decentralized and, you know, left outside of the hands of any centralized actor. And that itself is a big debate. A lot of people would disagree with us on that. I'm on your side of that debate. But don't go that extra leap to think about the, the fact that we're going to address every other sociological or cultural problem because we all then are forced because we're Bitcoiners or whatever to then pin that. You know, it's like a tail wagging the dog to be able to have to say that everything originated with the fiat money problem either. That, that's where some of, some of uh, I'll, I'll just say this joke, some of you guys, you know, start to lose me a little bit is it's asking too much of your solution. You're setting yourself up for failure, both in the expectations, even a failure that you set for society and your proponents. And, you know, I think part of our problem in the modern era, you know, postmodern era, whatever you want to call the moment we're in, is that we are as human beings, right? So hungry for a cause and purpose and meaning and identity, you know, whatever, as millennials and younger, that we flock to the quasi-religious secular figures or movements that fill that hunger and void for purpose. And I write about this in Woke Inc. I think that's part of what makes wokeism so appealing to a generation that isn't religious, that they actually have become religious without knowing it, just bowing to this new secular temple instead. I think it's true of a lot of uh, the cultishness surrounding Donald Trump, right? You could, you could support him and like a lot of his policies, but sort of the cult-like following, you know, I, th I think I see vestiges of it even in the muskism that we see, you know, emerging in the marketplace today. It's like a quasi-religious reverence for Elon Musk. And every time he does something stupid, it's, you have to explain it by saying not that he did something stupid, but that he's playing 5D chess. I don't think so. <laughs> I think sometimes he does just some stupid shit and you got to call that out. And, 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 so, and so anyway, I, I could go on and on about these. Oh, the climate religion, I think, has a lot of these features attached to it, too. And it's a shame. It would it would be a shame to me if we saw the same thing emerge around what I'll call Bitcoinism to turn it into like this religion versus it's actually like a sensible good thing about just decentralizing money as a, as a step towards a more free world and a more free society. So be it. Just stop right there. And don't go on to sort of pinning everything onto like the fiat money problem or else you just start to have the same problem as Muskism, Trumpism, wokeism, climatism or anything else. I mean, look, I, I agree in principle with this, but I think, uh, you know, if you discuss, if you think about it practically, 
it's difficult to find a serious problem in the world that is not exacerbated by the fact that uh, some people have the ability to print money out of thin air and everybody it's a else problem, has, to, but there are other has to work for it. But there, there are, so are other, other problems, problems that have nothing to do with this, right? Yeah. No, that's, that, that's where it's difficult because if this is what makes problems sustainable, you know, because otherwise markets are self-correcting. So if you come up with a problem and you don't have a money printer that is sustaining this problem then that problem can be resolved and and, and so you know, that, that's, that, see that, that's where that's why do, why do you have to go there because <laughs> you, you you're onto such a good thing here you're onto such a good thing why do you have to create the total set of problems in the world and, and shoehorn it into actually being solved by turning off the money printer I just don't think that's true and it's you're holding yourself to too high of a standard for otherwise advancing what is a worthy project and like I want to see the worthy project succeed by not creating the counter argument then just as from first principles, you know, logical philosophy here, all you have to do to debunk your argument is to say that, okay, here's a problem that will continue to perpetuate itself without the ad, without the existence all right, of centralized name money. One. Okay. So let's play the game. <laughs> I haven't done this before. Um, just, this is good. I mean, look, I, look, I, I think let's take one from the left, a concern of the left or whatever is like it, racism, the classic R word, whatever. We're obsessed with it culturally, but let's just take the existence of it. it it's based on, Serious concern. You know, I, I think that the argument goes that systemic racism or whatever exists in part because, and by the way, I find, you know, as critical as I've been of much of the critical race and woke narrative, I find the following persuasive is that there's some element of human nature that is inherently disposed to want to see ourselves as a member of an in-group or an out-group that cause us to behave in ways that otherwise define the side of our humanity that makes us escape the otherwise genetically hardwired caveman instincts that we're all born with. I mean, look, I'm just taking one fringe random example that came to mind because we were talking about racism. Look, one of the cases I make in my new book, by the way, Nation of Victims, is that Unlike a lot of conservatives, I don't deny the existence of that native racist impulse. I just think that we may be better as a society by letting to errors, mounting a immune response actually inflames the original problem. But you know, that's a discussion for another day. I bring up that example to say that that's a fundamental cultural problem, challenge that relates to human beings relating to one another outside of the sphere of the market, but just the way that one human relates to another. These are important questions that have just like nothing, like absolutely nothing to do with the printing of money or Bitcoin. And let's just like, this should be an easy concession. It's like almost advice that I would give you. Like acknowledge the weight of important other questions that ought to be addressed that, and I'm picking left-leaning, like left sympathetic examples here, or like the dumping problem of whether or not we have fiat money, we may collectively behave in a way that'll warm our planet. And the people who know me are going to laugh at me bringing up these examples because I'm like, I'm very much a, a climate religion skeptic, which is different from climate skeptic, but a climate religion skeptic. But let's just take that example. This has, these are, these are fundamental issues that have nothing to do with the fiat money debate that even if you solved the fiat money problem entirely by disaggregating it, these other irreducible challenges would still exist. And all I would say is my advice is acknowledge that 
and thereby you you lower the bogey for you to be able to win and get to the world that you want to get to, which which by the way is one that I, I'm deeply sympathetic yeah. to. So first of all, I mean, I'll, I'll just say that uh, the the case for Bitcoin is not. Uh, I'm not an evangelist for Bitcoin in the sense that I'm trying to win converts, and I think if uh, Bitcoin needed me to have a uh, you know a friendly disposition in order for it to win, then uh, it would not be winning at all. I think the, the the case for Bitcoin is just that it's better money and that it's harder that nobody can inflate it. And so therefore, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be an evangelist here. So that gives me the freedom to be honest about those things. So of course, yes, people are always going to have an in-group and an out-group. People are always going to prefer to get married. I mean, not always, but I think people will generally prefer to get married to people from their own culture, background, religion. Um, these things will exist. And the reality is that the market and modern technology is doing an enormous job in um, breaking these things down. Because, you know, when you lived in a society where every Everybody around you, everybody you ever met throughout your life looked a certain way. And then once you'd meet somebody who looks different, then, you know, clearly there are a lot of barriers that make it hard for you to communicate with them, to treat them like everybody else. But because everybody travels now, the world is so open and because of technology, these things are uh, dropping and they're declining. However, the real problems of racism come in places where governments are the ones that are enforcing, enforcing those things. People want to trade with one another and they may not want to you know people might always want to prefer to marry people from their own religion not others but they're still going to want to trade with others and we see this all over the world you know once the bombs stop flowing economic goods flow between across borders and people do want to trade uh, so I, i'll concede that one but i'll uh, but on the issue of climate um i uh, I, I sent you the digital copies of my book, but I'll send you a physical copy as well of the fiat standard. In the fiat standard, I make a case for why uh, I, I, I flat out reject the idea that we are destroying the earth or we are causing any kind of crisis on the earth. And I think the reason that this is very relevant to the case of fiat money is because the reason this idea is popular in any place, the reason this is mentioned as if it is science is because this idea is funded by fiat money. It's because science has been taken over essentially by government financing. All across universities, you have government funding through the money printer that is financing what gets research funding and what does not. And there's clear politics behind this. And the politics here is the politics of panic. It's the politics of how do you get more funding? And if you go and you say, well, you know, uh, the temperature of the earth over the last 100 years is been the variation over the last 100 years because along with all of the human activity and industrial activity is really no dis different from the variation that we'd see any other 100 years. In fact, the variation that we saw before industrialization far, far larger than anything that we've seen since then. You know, there were times in which trees used to grow in the Arctic, and now they don't anymore. So the Earth has gotten a lot colder than certain points in time. The Earth has gotten a lot hotter than certain points in time. We know that the, in the Middle Ages, the River Thames in London used to freeze. It doesn't freeze anymore. The idea that any of those things is being driven by our human activity, I believe, is extremely, extremely untenable. And the only reason it is believed is simply because you can only get funding in modern science because of this. So, so I sense, agree with you. I, I, I actually I actually agree with you. I mean, I was I was picking kind of um, an example that based on your earlier comment that I thought you were going to find sympathetic. Nobody wants a warming planet or whatever. I, I'm basically like lock, stock and barrel behind everything you said. But let me let me then take this in a different direction to make the point that we're talking about, which relates more to Bitcoin. Right. And, 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 and what our expectations can be from getting rid of fiat money and what 
you know, the outer bounds of our expectations ought to be versus not. Let's just get even a little more specific here. So let's let's just take that account of government spending being responsible for the propagation of this, in many cases, false climate religion. Okay. I agree with you on that. This is getting a little like boring here for a second, but important distinction. Governments will still be able to do that through fiscal policy, right? Okay. So you can't print the money. Tax and spend is the other lever that literally uh, the decentralization of the money itself or, or the even evolution beyond fiat currency itself doesn't actually solve. Uh, so, I mean, I have, I have like 10 more things to say, but I'll just pause there because I'd love to hear your response to that. Well, I think, you know, we have a we have an empirical test of this, which is uh, the era of the gold standard. So look at the gold standard. They couldn't print gold back then. Right. And uh, what do you find? You find that taxes were a lot lower and you find that uh, the ability of government to meddle in all kinds of things were far, far lower than what it is now. You know, the concept of classical liberalism. Is that true? I mean, I'm not sure. I think that I think there I think you could point to well, the income, the income tax, the income tax only came into being in the US in 1914. And I think the difference is this. The difference is that when you need when to When we tax, were still on a gold standard, though. No, with the establishment of the Federal Reserve. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, but, but I mean, we only went off the gold standard much later than that. No, it was uh, actually specifically it was 1917 when it was formally went off the gold standard. But okay, really okay. The, was it only that much later? Okay. Yeah, and, and I mean, effectively, they went off in 1914 because with the Fed, then basically the, the, the ground was uh, laid for going off of it. But I think the, the key distinction is this. If you need to tax and spend, you need to go to people and you need to take money from them. And that's a difficult, complicated thing. And it's especially difficult in a democracy because people don't like to vote for people who take their money. When you have a money printer, you don't have to ask for permission. <laughs> you just print the money, you spend, and then people just find that their purchasing power is declined, at which point you blame foreigners or you blame the bankers or you blame any kind of local um, ethnic minority that you don't like. And then it just becomes much easier no, to I, I, I make I get that. the narrative. I, I'm actually just interested in how true it is. I mean, like just on the, I mean, this is, like I said, free education here for me, but I mean, on my, on, on my, this is not my area of expertise, but I know a little something about, you know, you know, most things, but it, uh, relating to this, but only a little something. But 1971 is when they went off the gold standard, right? You know, under Nixon. I mean, that was not like really event when the U.S. left the gold standard. I mean, there, there was a Federal Reserve. Now, you could define that you could say if there is a Federal Reserve, you effectively went off the gold standard. But, you know, Knox, whatever, the, the, the gold in vaults still backstopped the U.S. dollar until like, Early in the Nixon era is is the history that I remember, and so yes and no because you know, up, until 19, okay. up until nineteen up until nineteen seventy one, an American couldn't just go to the, their bank and redeem their dollars for gold. In fact, the ownership of gold was illegal in the U.S. between nineteen thirty four and nineteen seventy one. So uh, 1914, the Fed was established. 1971, they went off the gold standard, joined World War One. They went back on the gold standard in 1921, I believe, and then went off the gold standard again in 1934. And that's when gold redemption was uh, stopped. And that's when FDR confiscated the gold in 1934. And this is, and, and this is like the next question you're going to get to, which is, well, why can't they do the same thing with Bitcoin? And here is the 
key uh, feature in Bitcoin is that it was much easier to confiscate gold in 1934 because by its very nature, being physical, you have to centralize the gold in order to have a modern banking system and in order to have a clearance system with it because you can't just move gold around physically every time you want to send it. So yeah, you have to centralize it. Here's how the government it. confiscates those. So, so, so I get your point about the physicality. And it's a good point, right? The physicality of it is different from, from the logistics of confiscating Bitcoin. Like if done in, at its theoretical best, it can't be done. But the way the government actually, you know, gets people who don't, you know, pay the taxes they want them to pay often isn't by going into their bank account and confiscating the digital money. It's by effectively, you know, metaphorically putting a gun to their head and showing up at their house and dragging them to jail if they don't turn it over themselves. Right. And so the, the you know, I mean, what's I mean, again, I have many more things to say, but I'll pause there. What say you to that? Right. Just just play this out. Right. If you're a citizen in the United States and you have Bitcoin, it's great. Hand, government's like, all right, fine. Hand it over. Still, we've got fiscal policy. Yeah. We're not but, able to print more money. We have to pay it for it by taxing. We have to pay for it by taxing you. If you're not paying your taxes, we're dragging you to prison. I don't care if it's in Bitcoin dollars or any other currency. You better pony up. Well, OK, fine. They can't go and confiscate your Bitcoin, but they can put you in jail. They can, but the distinction is that again with gold, you know, I mean, most Americans until today, they don't even realize, they don't even understand that there was a gold confiscation that took place in 1934. As far as. And I know, I know it's a good narrative to fit into, but I'm asking like pragmatically going forward. Like, let's I'm saying, say, even FDR in 1934, when there was a depression, there was a huge crisis, and everybody was more or less, well, not everybody, but a lot of Americans were supportive of kind of draconian measures to fix the economy. That was not, it was not possible for them to go around and just confiscate gold physically from everybody's houses. What they need, what they did was the gold was already in banks and central banks. And all that they did was that they just revalued it and they told people you can only use the papers from now on and the paper is no longer redeemable in gold. So that's a lot. Uh, just think about it logistically. It's just an enormously different magnitude of a problem to solve. Which is, you just need a bunch of economists and a bunch of TV and newspaper people to explain why this is a good thing. And then, you know, the gold is already there. Like, this is the thing. The gold is already at the bank. So, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Possession of the gold is already centralized in institutions that are regulated by the government and the central bank. And so taking it over is a pretty straightforward thing. Compared to the situation with Bitcoin, where it is already massively distributed over many, many owners, and then you need to, you know, basically put a gun to their heads individually and have them hand over their gold individually. And that's just a much trickier. I mean, you could argue that both ways, which is how I think about this. And and, and this is a this is a much more fun discussion for me because, like, I talk about my stuff all the time. So, like, this is (laughs) the first thing I mean, I'm just saying as a caveat to state the obvious. I'm a foreigner in your terrain here, right? So you're, you're on your home turf. So take my challenges as like less even as challenges and more just as questions pushing, you know, pushing the frontier forward here. But, you know, in that spirit, I, I guess you could argue it both ways, right? And this is one of the things I've worried about as I sort of think about the Bitcoiner argument here is, okay, kind of the cascade is great. We're on the same page, getting rid of fiat money, going to be a good thing in moving the ball forward. Where I worry is that when we pin too much to that, our expectations may be disappointed because the government is then under greater pressure to solve its same issues through tax and spend fiscal policy without the monetary policy at its armamentarium. Great argument about possession. I think there's a debate to be had about whether possession is nine-tenths of the law or whether it's five-tenths when you have guns involved. And I'm using guns figuratively, but government guns, you know, only only half figuratively. It might be five-tenths when government with a gun is is uh, doesn't need to necessarily gain possession of one thing if they can gain possession of a different thing with a gun at their disposal. And so, 
you know, that's what the government effectively does is they show up with, with uh, physical force and say that if you don't hand over, if I can't possess it, well, great. It's going to be even greater unchanneled frustration to say that at least I'm going to settle this through confiscating gold or through confiscating digital money. But if I can't do that, then you actually resort to the backstop of raw physical force, not through physical possession, but through physical possession of the person, right? And I think that the deterrent effect of that, as the government might see it, might be powerful enough to justify doing it in a few high-profile cases where that actually creates the very conditions for a less free society because government has channeled its worst impulses not through fiat money, which is the way it's doing it today, but through a different mechanism involving the use of raw force itself, which goes back to the central, you know, kind of debate discussion we were having, which is, is this a step forward, which is where you and I are on the same page versus is it the end all be all solution? Because if we view it as such, we actually may create other dystopia. Yeah. By failing to recognize that actually the fundamental cultural and political challenge had nothing to do with Bitcoin and fiat money, that was just a symptom and a manifestation. That's a very good point, yeah. Yeah, symptom or cause is the core debate here. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the way that I would answer it is that it's ultimately a technological question. Yes, well, not totally a technological question, but I think just the technological reality imposes certain restrictions on the way that agents behave in this kind of scenario. And ultimately, what it comes down to, the difference between um, Bitcoin on the one hand and fiat money and gold on the other hand, is that... Your fiat money and your gold are basically useless without the resort for government institutions. Because in the in the modern economy, where you need to trade with people that don't live at arm's length, where you can just hand them the money physically over, um, in that kind of world, you need institutions that allow your money to travel. And governments are very good at monopolizing those institutions. So before Bitcoin, you know, we had central banks. That was the only way that you could send money from on one country to the other. You had to go through your local banking branch of your government's central bank. And they had to go to the other country's central bank. And that's how money went from one country to the other. Now, the key engineering feature of Bitcoin that makes it different is that its international settlement is independent of political institutions. In other words, they could do this kind of prosecution. They could ban Bitcoin. They could make it illegal to hold Bitcoin. But people who have Bitcoin can basically hide it and can still send it halfway around the world without anybody knowing that they're sending it around the world. Because at the end of the day, um, it's... Yeah, I, I get that. And that's, that's, the, that's the essence of the point. And, 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 the- and I'll just, and I'll add one more thing, which is that the world is not made up of all one government. We don't have one government that rules the world. We have competing governments. And if, especially after the last year, you know, when we saw this massive schism happen between uh, Russia basically getting kicked off of the US dollar system. And so... If one part of the world is fighting Bitcoin, that gives a bigger incentive for people in the other part of the world to adopt it and to not fight it. And so this is kind of where it the, there might be a case to be made that the cat is already out of the bag. It's difficult to contain it now because even if some of the world's most powerful governments were to go after it, and already we've seen China go after Bitcoin. I mean, a big part of the reason that we saw a big crash in the price of Bitcoin is because China banned Bitcoin mining and that destroyed businesses of some very uh, big Bitcoin miners who had to sell a big chunk of their Bitcoin and caused the price of Bitcoin to crash. But you know what? It did not destroy Bitcoin. And in fact, Bitcoin's trading still takes place in China. A lot of Chinese people still own Bitcoin. And it's... It's it, it's not clear that uh, you can get 
and coordinated global fight on Bitcoin where everybody who's holding Bitcoin gets thrown into jail. I think this kind of scenario is much more feasible in these kind of thought exercises than it is in reality, particularly as you know, governments are going to see the benefits for them from using Bitcoin on the one hand, and they're going to see the benefits of taxing people who hold Bitcoin. This is another one. Yeah, I guess the point I would make is, is that I think we're going to be more likely to be successful in getting to the world that you care about getting to if we recognize that plural solutions are required rather than pinning it all on Bitcoin. And, and so, so one of those problems is the native impulse of government to exercise undue control over the liberty of the individual in ways that go beyond fiat money. Because what does that recognition do? It allows us to check that element of governmental and institutional overreach, including even the government-private sector relationship, which is what's at the heart of the ESG debate, uh, which surprisingly, and to my pleasure, we haven't touched a ton on because I'm talking about that all the time. But um, but but that's- I'm not going to let you off. We're going to get to it now. Okay, okay. But you know, that's that's a separate and distinct problem that if we're independently, separately, and distinctly addressing that in parallel, we're more likely to check government and its overreach in totality in ways that prevent the problem by just pinning the entire solution on Bitcoin creates this cat and mouse game, which is like all about then creating an even greater incentive for government to use other tools in its arsenal other than fiat money including but not limited to the backstop of physical force, police power, violence, weapons itself as, I mean, it's the ultimate backstop of of state power, really, to be more likely to have to use that to settle what it could not settle through fiat money versus let's imagine a forward progress to the world that you, you care about achieving that encompasses more plural solutions to check the relationship between the individual and the state, to check the relationship between the individual and the agents, the uncut, the, you know, agents like BlackRock or others who are undue influence in aggregating capital from those everyday citizens to check the cultural challenges, the cultural insecurities of a generation that caused them to fall for this trick. I mean, bluntly, the kinds of questions I've, I'm most focused on. I think that that is necessary in order for Bitcoin to play its role in achieving the state of the more free and, and greater liberty future world that probably you and I both care about. Because if we just pin it all on Bitcoin, we're going to, it's like a hydraulic pump system. You know, you, you uh, uh, where, where, the, where the stuff that flows through the hydraulic pumps is sort of the, the tainted influence, the tainted impulse, the bad impulse, the evil impulses of government. If you squeeze in one place, it's like a balloon. It's like a hydraulic pump system. It shows up and, and balloons somewhere else in the system, unless you're working on the full system whole hog. And, and I think that that's just the only place where we have a departure in opinions is putting all of that work on the back of Bitcoin, I think is, is, is risky. It is too risky to place that bet in a way that could even be self-defeating to the Bitcoin vision or the Bitcoiner vision and agenda in its own right. Does that, does that like agree or no, not? No, absolutely. I, 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 very, it's very true. And I think it's, it's something that I'm definitely guilty of. And, and to an extent, I was just kind of taking the extreme position of trying to justify this kind of maximalist position. But I think you're right. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that I've, I've said this to some of my friends, which is, um, uh, 
if these really are the political implications of Bitcoin, I sometimes go back to thinking about when I wrote the Bitcoin standard. I mean, a lot of the Bitcoin standard talks about politics and the role and the effect on government and so on. And a part of me thinks maybe I should have just written the book focusing on only the economic case and just uh, letting uh, you know letting the, the the political case play itself out and just um, making the economic case more compelling. You know, this is scarce; nobody can make more of it, and uh, it's a good way for people to say that. That future. resonates with me, by the way. Yeah, and, and 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 you know what? Are there to borrow the word of the day? You know, are there positive externalities for that from our politics, et cetera? Great. Don't don't have to hang your hand on the on the on the positive externality. Start with the meat, and then and then let the rest unfold as it may. That's kind of where exactly. I'd be on this, actually. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly what many of the uh, more uh, media friendly Bitcoin uh, faces do. Like people like Michael Saylor, Natalie Brunel, um, you know, they, they they get on Fox and MSNBC and they make this case. Uh, I'm I, I don't more know these a, people. I don't know these people, and and I do, and, I, and and the way you framed that makes me want to cringe. Uh, uh, but <laughs> but but I, I'm saying it in terms of more in terms of less about like I'm not I'm not saying that as a matter of here's how we persuaded the masses because I, I I'm not like a, a fan of framing for the sake of like achieving betraying the truth. I think it's closer to tracking the truth actually too because. Uh, why I think is once you start putting those political responsibilities on the shoulders of Bitcoin, uh, you know, Bitcoin alone is without other front, without other frontiers in this longer run battle to check the native impulses of power aggregators, including foremost in government, uh, are going to find other tools in their arsenal beyond fiat money to still get to some of their same goals. And if we put it all on, pin the case on fiat money, we're not going to do enough of making progress on those other frontiers that otherwise is going to be required in the game theory of this, of how it plays out. Uh, if we fast forward the tape, you know, 10, 20, 30 years into the post Bitcoin future. So that's kind of where I'm coming from is not because I think it's more better for MSNBC or FA, you know, and, and that people can, can wrap their heads around the economic argument, but would view the political argument as crazy. That's not my reason for saying it. I think it's more close to actually tracking the essence and the truth itself. Uh, and, and the positive externalities can, can sort of be, I would say undeclared benefits whose benefits we, you know, are, are of unknown magnitude, but we may as well see unfold because the economic case alone uh, is powerful enough. No, I, I think you have a good point here, but we need to get back to ESG. Oh, yeah, so that's tell right, us now, that's right. okay. why is ESG a scam? <laughs> well, um, look, I think that the implementation of it alone is a scam. So, so I'll give, you, give it to you on, on sort of four layers, right? There's A, the fiduciary breach, okay? The use of centralized market participants, financial institutions, using $68 trillion of other people's money to advance agendas that most of those other people, the owners of capital, actually disagree with. Why do I pick $68 trillion? That's the amount of capital managed by asset managers globally who are signatories of the Climate Action 100 Plus Network, okay? So- and that brings me to problem number two of the scam, which is it's not only in a fiduciary breach, it is an, it is an anti-competitive problem. I'm, I'm mostly an antitrust skeptic, but this is an anti-competitive problem because you know, take, the, take the signatories of the Climate Action 100 Plus Network, just for example. They're just one of many associations like it. But you know, if you imagine the world's largest oil and gas CEOs, let's say, getting together on a Zoom call like this one and coordinating to you know, reduce oil production and then say gas prices go up at the pump as a result. 
that would be a cut and dry price fixing violation. You know, there, there isn't a clearer cut example. Yet when the top so-called shareholders of those companies, like, like you know, Exxon, Chevron, you name it. I mean, the top shareholders include firms like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard every time. When they mandate the underlying companies to behave in the same way and coordinate with one another as asset managers through the Climate Action 100 Plus Network to do it, somehow we celebrate that today under three-letter acronyms like ESG instead. So A, you've got the fiduciary breach. B, you've got the anti-competitive problem. I would say the, the price-fixing problem. Uh, but then third, you also even get into conflicts of interest. And I think this is underexplored territory, but it's really interesting, which is those same ESG linked to asset managers that use their voting power to force underlying companies like oil and gas companies to cut production projects in the West. They don't say a peep as firms like PetroChina on the other side of the world are picking up some of those very same projects. And the irony is if you look at who's among the large shareholders of PetroChina, it is in fact none other than BlackRock, one of the same firms that's forcing American companies to drop those oil and gas projects. So the fund holders, the people who invest in those funds that own American companies might be left holding the bag. But for BlackRock, they're able to manage Chinese funds that don't apply those same Chinese standards for Chinese clients to own Chinese companies. Why is that? Well, it's in their interest to do it because if they applied those same ESG constraints in China, the CCP would tell you to, leave the market and close the door on your way out. And so that's an asymmetric standard that creates even a conflict of interest that I think is, is under-discussed. And there are other conflicts of interest too. You know, I think they, they, they take on capital mandates from CalPERS in the state of New York who say that we won't do business with you unless you embrace the goals of the Paris Climate Accords, but you have to use everyone else's money to do it. Well, that means everyone else is unknowingly dragged along for the ride, which is, you know, which, which I view as a real problem. So You've got fiduciary breach, you've got anti-competitive issues, you've got conflicts of interest, and, and I could you know, go on down the list. I think there's even constitutional violations here, forcing people to engage in political speech using their money, the government doing it, right? Government pension funds are effectively giving money to the BlackRocks of the world, or in some cases, voting shares of their own in politicized ways in corporate America's boardrooms. And, and I think that that is a government violation to use, force somebody to pay money, let's say you're a government employee. You have to pay into the pension fund. Well, if you have to pay into the pension fund and then they use that pension fund to engage in politicized speech, that's a form of government compelled speech, which is a First Amendment violation and a constitutional violation. So I could go on for hours, but I think that it is a scam. It is a violation of the law. I think it is the largest scale fiduciary breach of the 21st century hiding in plain sight. And, and bluntly, you know, we need, to, we need to do it something about it, but I prefer to do something about it through market solutions rather than through you know, state-driven government solutions, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing with, with Strive. Yeah, so tell us about that. What are you doing with Strive? Yeah, I mean, I, I, by the way, did not imagine I was going to start another business. I thought I was done with businesses, writing books, you know, engaging in scholarship, right? I write regularly for the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. That's the phase of life that I thought I was moving into. I had kids, you know, this is where I thought my life was going. But the, the funny thing is... <laughs> Nobody was pursuing, the, the, I think, the lowest hanging fruit solution, which was just to create competitors to BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard that offered everyday citizens the ability to have exposure to the stock market without advancing those political values. And, and so the whole premise behind Strive was to offer investors the ability to gain exposure to the market, to the, to the you know, publicly traded companies of America and eventually other parts of the world but with a different voice and vote that 
uses the voting power and the shareholder voice to mandate those underlying companies to focus exclusively on delivering excellent products and services to their customers to maximize long-run value without apologizing for it, without advancing someone else's social or political agenda. And that somebody else could be BlackRock, it could be the government to say that, no, we're not advancing anyone else's agenda. We're exclusively advancing the agenda of the client and the capital owner. And by the way, if there are capital owners who want with their own money to advance an environmental or social agenda, as capitalists, you know, you and I probably would say, agree on this. We respect that. That's a free country and a free decision for someone to make with their money. It so happens that Strive would not be a good home for that person's capital, right? Strive would not be a good steward of someone's money who wants to use that to vote in corporate America to advance a political or environmental agenda, as is their right to do. They just deserve somebody else to be their home of their capital. But for everyone else who wants to exclusively advance a pecuniary agenda without apologizing for it, that's why we built Strive as an institution to serve those investors into the marketplace. And you know, I'm happy to say, uh, you know, not even a full year into this, even a few months into launching our first product, um, you know, I hope we're, I hope we're making a difference. Yeah, I think it's a great idea, and it's, it's, it's very easy to get disheartened by those things. But the way to fight anything best is to act upon it rather than just keep complaining about it. And this is why, you know, it's, uh, it's admirable that you're doing this. You're just giving people the the the, the opportunity to. Uh, vote with their wallet by taking their money out of uh, these institutions. But what are the uh, obstacles that face you? Like, how difficult is it for you to go out there and just say, no, we are specifically going against the ESG agenda? Any kind of um, legal, institutional uh, huge, problems? Huge obstacles, huge obstacles. I mean, I think that these incumbents have really, in many ways, captured government actors, state actors, etc., to have sticky long-run relationships with them that make it very difficult to switch. It's like the equivalent of a social media that creates a network effect by giving its product away for free. It, there's an analogy to how these you know, financial institutions have dealt not with the everyday consumer directly. And most people who are invested in BlackRock or Vanguard do not know that they're invested in BlackRock or Vanguard funds. It's intermediated through, through you know, investment advisors, through pension funds, through 401k managers at their corporation, through, the, through state treasurers, through a wide range of intermediaries who are using their money in ways that are invisible to them. And I think that lack of transparency is a crucial part of the game, where if most investment advisors, right, so-called registered investment advisors, wealth managers, or pension fund managers, went back or had to go back to the owner of capital and ask them, look, we're giving your money to a firm whose funds are using your money to vote in favor of a scope three emissions cap at Chevron or a racial equity audit at Apple. Do you want that done with your money? Check yes if you do, and we get the permission to do it. Very few of them would do it. And the system is built in a way that those intermediaries do not go back and ask those capital owners that question while unwittingly doing the exact same thing. That is a problem. And if it weren't for that, we wouldn't have had this problem. So our job you know, part of why I started Strive is less as a, you know, less thinking about it as just a financial institution, but more thinking about it as an education company to educate capital owners on not telling them what to do with their money, but just educating them on what actually comes with your money, not just a financial entitlement, but a voice and a vote. And, and, and it's going to take a kind of a bottom up revolution of those capital owners going back to those intermediaries and telling them, I mean, me going to those intermediaries and telling them, I mean, I spend my time doing it, but it, it, it has a minimal impact because for them, 
it's no problem for them as long as the capital owner doesn't actually know it and isn't really complaining about it. But if the capital owner themselves wakes up to say, wait a minute, that's my money. You don't mess with my money to advance an agenda that I don't want to advance. That's when this tidal wave changes. And I think that's coming, but it's going to take an awakening before, before people actually you know, are able to be educated enough to do something about it. And I hope that's the role that Strive plays in the market. Yeah, at the risk of uh, <laughs> triggering you again, I'm going to say one more way in which Bitcoin fixes this is simply the idea that the reason most people invest is not because they want to be investing or that they have any business being investors. The reason they invest is because they can't save. Um, fiat money destroys people's ability to save. And I think if we had a hard money, like under the gold standard, the vast majority of people would focus on earning money by doing something productive and then saving in a hard money that doesn't require active management. You know, you don't need to take a position on how Apple runs its company because you don't know anything about how Apple does its business. You know, you're a dentist. You focus on being the best dentist that you can, and then you take the money that you earn from dentistry, you put it in gold, you can count on it to hold on to its value, and then you don't need to be involved with all of those things. The fact that there's just so much money out there needing to be managed is, uh, in my opinion, I think, is the reason why the investment management industry is somewhere between 10 to 100 times larger than it needs to be. And in a, in a, in a hard money world, uh, investing would be something that is done by people who really think of it as a job. You know, you once you've got enough savings and you're willing to take a risk, then, you know, you start looking into individual investments and you can do it with, you know, with the time and focus to understand what you're doing. Either you're investing in a company or you're handing your money over to a company that you understand whose judgment you trust. And I think in that kind of world, it'd be very different because people would only invest when they see something extremely compelling. It's very different from the current situation where you effectively have a gun to your head, or as, as Michael Saylor puts it, you have a melting ice cube in your hand and you have to put it you have to hand it over to somebody to take care of it because otherwise your wealth is going to disappear. Well, if the default becomes that your wealth is held on, uh, you just hold on to your wealth and it holds on to its value, then investment becomes a much more sane world in which you only go for something that can really make a compelling case for you for why you should be doing it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with any of what you said, apart from being you know triggered or anything like that, far from it. I just think that you could say in the meantime would be one thing I would say. Uh, and, and I think that even in a steady state, you don't want centralized actors using other people's money to misuse their voice and misrepresent it. And I think that that's something that the intuitions of a Bitcoiner, I think, would be very much behind. Uh, in the world we live in today, that is, that is a, it, it is a big problem that demands a solution. And so, you know, I'm working and still in the green pieces of paper marketplace, but that, but there's, there's a, you know, a 68 plus trillion dollar problem there that demands a solution before the green pieces of paper market is itself replaced. And I don't think those things are in tension with one another. I think that those are, those, I think in, in many ways are deeply synchronous, but, uh, but I just think it's important from all angles, my, my angle too included. And I, and I try to be conscious of this, not to fall into a proximity bias because thinking that you're working on a problem, it's easy to use that to convince yourself into thinking that that is the only problem that demands a solution and an end-all be-all solution. I catch myself in that trap all the time in terms of what I'm doing with Strive. But um, you know, I think it's something that we all kind of probably owe ourselves a look in the mirror to, to, to check ourselves on because you know, it's the future state of a more free world that we care to get to. 
and more empowered, individually empowered, autonomous world, you know, individually empowered and in a world in which individuals are able to great, exercise greater autonomy, if that's what we all care about, I think we ought to look at the plural means that it may take to get there and the effectiveness of getting there rather than, uh, you know, making a even, even unconsciously biased, if you will, uh, you know, waiting on the path that each of us is taking and forging to pave the road to that, you know, I think better destination. And I think that's a trap that we, you know, we're each, myself included, uh, probably prone to fall into. And so everything that I had to say in the earlier conversation about offering my, you know, outsider perspective from a Bitcoiner, but who's deeply sympathetic, or, you know, I don't even know what it means to be a Bitcoiner, but, uh, but not being somebody who spends his day job, you know, focusing on Bitcoin was meant, you know, I think, I mean that constructively. And, and I will tell you, actually, a lot of Bitcoiners have, have actually caused me to uh, make similar corrections in my own orientation, right? You focus on a problem, what I'm focused on with Strive right now, you have your blinders on. It's part of what it takes to execute and make your own contributions, but that's intention with deluding yourself to thinking that that's the end-all, be-all solution. And, and I think one of the things I will remind myself of every day and will say every day is that what we're doing at Strive is at best part of a plethora of partial solutions. And I think, I think um, you know, plethora of partial solutions is, is what we all should be shooting for rather than any one single centralized solution. And even an intellectually centralized solution, I think, can recreate some of the very problems of what it purported to go out and solving, which is my only, you know, stay a Bitcoiner uh, and not a Bitcoinist is all I would say. Speaking of which, there was a, uh, I'm not sure if it was you who tweeted this or somebody else, but very topical. Uh, recently, it emerged that FTX's ASG rating was uh, basically very good and higher than uh, Exxon Mobil's rating. I, was it you who tweeted this? Yeah, I saw that. I retweeted that after uh, somebody else posted it. And, and, and the comment I made was that this should surprise no one, right? This is the essence of the ESG scam. I mean, the whole thing with SBF is he, he put himself out to the world, presented himself as being one of the good guys, you know, pro-regulation of his industry. And by the way, the, the, the hilarious thing is, I mean, you know this better than most and your audience will too. He's operating a centralized old school exchange that just happens to trade cryptocurrency. There's nothing about that that has anything to do with decentralization. If it actually was a truly decentralized exchange, he probably couldn't have misappropriated funds in the ways that he actually did. But the irony is he's, he's wearing the veneer, the face of crypto while operating a centralized exchange, misappropriating funds from it, but disguises it by creating the, the virtue smokescreen. Hey, I'm the guy who's calling for pro-regulation, by the way, without drawing the distinctions between centralized and decentralized finance and that pro-regulation bent. It's a pro-regulation bent that applies to everyone. By the way, making 30 million plus dollar donations to the Democratic parties, again, one of the signals of being the good guys. And then this fact set subsidiary company gives them a higher leadership and governance rating on their scale than ExxonMobil, which is laughable. And yet it's actually unsurprising because this is how the whole script always plays out. It, it reminded me of like, I, didn't, I don't think I tweeted this, but it reminded me of the Volkswagen CEO and debacle where Winterkorn, he was the, one of the ESG darlings, frequently talking about the importance of the energy transition, the climate transition. You know, Volkswagen won ESG awards. I mean, how silly is this that we even have such a thing? But ESG awards under his tenure, when in fact the company was fraudulently tampering with its meters to understate its level of emissions. I mean, the same pattern just repeats itself again and again. And we human beings, it seems, have a 
a desire to flog ourselves over and over again by falling for these good guy narratives and mythologies. But, um, but anyway, I think that that is, I, I think that is that example in action yet again. And, you know, it's, it's a shame because I think in the public eye of people who don't know the difference between Bitcoin versus cryptocurrency or centralized versus decentralized finance, it's in the short run, in the public image, going to cast a bad pall on the whole thing. And you have this guy, SBF, to thank you for it, for actually having made himself the self-appointed face of being the pro-regulation attitude in Washington, D.C. And the irony is it's probably going to provoke a wave of regulation that over-regulates decentralized finance, which actually might have been the best way of preventing a fraud like this from happening in the first place. And so, you know, it's part of why I bother to, to write about this stuff, to tweet about it, to go on TV about it, is I hope that the more transparency we can put on it, the less likely that outcome becomes. Yeah, I certainly hope so too. And I think it's a great example because um, really uh, the, what it shows is that, you know, the path to success is just virtue signaling and lobbying and paying the right politicians. And then you get all of these scores and that completely overwhelms almost the things that you do. You know, Exxon is out there um, making the lights go on in millions of homes around the world, allowing billions of people to stay warm. And they get marked down for that because you know they're just making so many billions of people survive the winter. Meanwhile, while Exxon is, by the way, being pressured by activist investors like Engine Number One to change its own business model, anyway. So that's a whole separate story for another day. Yeah. Um, and actually, well, you know what? It relates to this Bitcoin bit. Maybe it's a good point to close on, man. Is um, you know, I think part of the problem, and the, the, the anti-ESG crowd misses this sometimes, is they'll tell you know the Black Rocks of the world, you're boycotting oil and gas, and you know that's wrong, and it's not good for humanity. And then BlackRock and others will respond and say things like, no, 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 we're the largest investors in companies like Exxon and Conoco and Chevron, et cetera. And they're right. And in a certain sense, that's the problem. The problem isn't that these ESG-linked fund managers are divesting from sectors like oil and gas. It's that they're invested in oil and gas companies and they are changing the essence of what those companies themselves are. I mean, you could see the public letter that I wrote to the board of directors as Chevron, if you want to read about that. I mean, so, so I, I wrote a public letter to the, to, the C, to the board, CEO responded. I had, you know, I've been engaging with that company, including with their CFO and other members of their management team since then. But I think that that's the greater danger is not the divestment game from oil and gas, but changing what those oil and gas companies do. And I don't want to see that happen in the world of decentralized finance, in the world of Bitcoin, in the world of other cryptocurrencies and, and even decentralized exchanges. And that's, that's a parting thought I'll leave you and your audience with is I, I want to, part of the reason I want to get more educated on your world is to make sure that the centralized powers that be do not taint the essence of what you're trying to do, the essence of your project, not by divesting from it and ignoring it, but by investing in it and, and actually making themselves effectively an essential part of who actually pulls the strings. That's definitely what's happening in the U.S. energy sector. And I think it's, you know, as, as Strive thinks about how we might in our life as a company engage in the world of decentralized finance, which is not a, a definite yet. I, I don't want to do it for the sake of doing it, but I want to do it uh, for the sake of bringing a unique form of almost protection to a, a space that deserves to be protected. I think much like the U.S. energy sector, the oil and gas sector, that's an area where I'm very much, uh, you know, open for ideas on how 
Strive could do something useful in that space, as I hope we are in the U.S. energy sector. Yeah, no, I agree with you entirely. I think it's a, it's a tragedy that uh, the, the, the oil and gas companies are out there leading the charge to basically destroy their own business model. I mean, it's insane. Amen. Imagine imagine Hershey's going out there and saying, you know, we want people to quit chocolate. Like, it doesn't make sense. <sighs> totally. And I mean, so, so there's this idea of the scope three emissions cap. And, and scope three is something that every... Bitcoiner needs to pay attention to. Okay, but my general rule of thumb in the ESG debate is the more boring the word sounds, the more you have to pay attention to it because it was designed to sound boring for a reason. Okay, so scope three emissions refer to not just reducing your own emissions, not just reducing the emissions from your use of electricity and power, which is scope two, indirect emissions, but scope three is anyone up and down your supply chain. So, so Chevron in 2021 was effectively forced to adopt scope three emissions reduction plans and in targets. Even though the board didn't want to do it, they were overridden by BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, who voted in favor of a scope three proposal put up by some Dutch nonprofit that said its objective was to fight climate change. It had nothing to do with advancing Chevron's best business interests. But the large so-called shareholders of Chevron forced them to do it anyway. And if a large company adopts a scope three emissions cap, that means they're not just, it's not just their behavior. They're then forced to take accountability and drive behavioral change. Anyone in upstream or downstream, any of their suppliers all the way down to their customers, the people who buy fuel from Chevron, they're taking responsibility for it. Now, the business logic of that makes literally, like quite literally about as much sense as McDonald's taking responsibility for reducing the body weight of anyone who's eaten a Big Mac without asking the customer to share any of the responsibility. That's effectively how much business sense it makes for Chevron to adopt this policy. But it's also a way for the Black Rocks of the world, the ESG kings of the world, to use the tentacles of the companies they control and direct the behavior of, like publicly traded companies in the US, from Apple to, to Chevron to anyone else, to then affect anybody who depends on Apple's or Chevron's products to do their work, right? And that includes a lot of Bitcoiners who, who require, I mean, requires every human being using fuel, using oil, using natural gas, using an iPhone. And, and so that's, that's, the, that's the number one trend to watch in the ESG trend is not just the ESG, but the scope threeization of ESG, which is really what makes it ubiquitous. And, and I think that's, again, brings me back to the point I was making earlier, which is why I think plural solutions matter. And you know, I think not falling in love with what each of us is uniquely working on without recognizing the need for multi-fronts to be won in, I think, the battle for liberty I think is something that's of essential importance because otherwise it's just going to be a cat and mouse game. Yeah, no, absolutely. One encouraging development here is that uh, oil majors Shell and Exxon are getting into Bitcoin mining. And I think this is a very good thing because uh, Bitcoin mining can have the potential for allowing them to finance themselves independently from ESG money. From Well, because- you know, this is the, but as long as they're publicly traded companies, the dilemma, BlackRock State are still calling the shots because they determine who sits on the board under U.S. corporate law. And they're using, you know, of course, if the actual capital owners of Exxon and Chevron were voting their interests, I don't think that that would have a bad impact on their behavior. It could have a good impact. But when these intermediaries wield that control, they're changing the behavior of those firms themselves in ways that could actually, you know, affect even your world in ways that are problematic. So, um, so you know, we're, uh, that's probably a whole discussion for another day, but, um, but I did want to, you know, make that point before we wrapped up. 
Yeah, definitely. I think there's just so much to talk about in this. Uh, and we might have to have you on again to get into the nitty gritty of all of these uh, boring terms that most of us uh, are conditioned to just ignore and think, oh, it's just boring bureaucracies. But as you say, you know, something as innocuous sounding as scope three means basically Chevron is responsible for everybody in the world because everybody uses their fuel. If the scope three vision prevails, that's the whole ballgame. And, and, and it's hiding in plain sight and people don't even see it. So we'll, we'll, we'll maybe save that discussion for next time. The relationship between the energy sector, Bitcoin, uh, the scope threeization of everything. And I think that that'll also reveal where we might be talking about different time horizons here. You might be talking about a 50-year time horizon. I might be talking about a 10-year time horizon. But the 50-year time horizon looks really different if we don't fix the path to the 10-year time horizon, which is kind of one of the things that, you know, I think, um, you know, I think how our projects, I think, are quite synchronous with one another. Excellent. Well, yeah, we're going to have to have you over again to discuss this in more detail. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. This has been massively informative and fascinating. And I wish you all the best of luck on everything that you're doing. Thanks, man. I learned a lot too. So thanks for having me. Cheers. Have a good day. Appreciate it. Yeah.